we're going to look at the section of the creeds that uh, we've been looking at the creeds, which were the Bible for believers for well over a thousand years, getting very close to 1700 years before the average person would ever see a completed whole 66 books Bible. And so as we've been doing this, we're going to take a look at the new sections of the creeds this morning, the Nicene Creed and then the Apostles. If we could put that one up. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And then the Apostles' Creed, uh, do we have that one? Yes, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Let's face it. Christians believe some rather impossible things. One of my favorite scenes from Alice in Wonderland comes to mind. Whenever um, we have that one, let's bring it up. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe in possible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was younger, I always did it for half an hour a day. Well, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. I love that line. I love that section of that very bizarre, probably drug-inspired piece of literature. <clears throat> And in, within the book, just, I mean, come on people, within the book, to, to change your perspective on things, you eat stuff, and then things happen. So is it, is it impossible, is it ridiculous to believe in a resurrection? Some will say it's not reasonable at all, but we need to pull back. We need to be very careful when we throw around the word impossible. You see, that's, uh, that has a particular meaning to it. In science, for example, we would not say it was impossible. We would say it was unlikely and that there are many reasons to believe that it could not happen with basic understanding of science. But you don't throw around the word impossible. A lot of people don't get this because they get their science from news people and stop it. Uh, you and the news people. If, if, um, if a man was standing on top of a house and we said, what do you plan to do? And he said, I'm about to jump off here and flap my arms and see if I shall fly. We would tell him that was unreasonable. It was dangerous. He had no basis upon which to do this. But if he looked down and said, as a scientist, are you telling me it can't happen? We would say, nope. And then we'd go to the hospital. <laughs> the thing is, in science, you're not allowed to say impossible unless the science proves it. Also in science... You're not allowed to appeal to a God to explain things. We call that the God of the gaps. We don't know something happened here, and then something happened here, and we don't know the mechanism, so God. That's not what Christians do, but that's what they claim we do. They say we just ex we throw God in there to explain stuff that we don't need explained, because science will take it. Even scientists like the late Carl Sagan and, and late Stephen Hawking both argued that belief in any God at all now was unnecessary and counterproductive because, as they would say, all the gaps are filled or soon will be. They have tremendous faith, but not in God, in science yet to come. It will, those gaps will be filled with science at one time. Hawking says the only reason people believe in miracles at all is because in Jesus' time, 
They were just ignorant, superstitious people who believed in miracles, a pre-scientific, myth-filled world. And that makes a lot of sense, unless you've read history. And see, that's the thing, people don't read much. Are you aware that in America, <clears throat> over 80% of people will never read a complete book after they leave high school? That's why we have all kinds of movie theaters and shops, but almost no bookstores. It's why Amazon doesn't just sell books, because they would go broke. People don't read, and they substitute emotions for thought and slogans for thought. Carl Sagan wrote a book called The Demon Haunted World, which all he wrote in that book was the reason people believed in God was to explain the God of the gaps, to explain what they could not, to give them comfort whenever something overwhelmed them. That's all that God is to them <clears throat> is a pre-scientific now unnecessary explanation Carl Sagan in his book paints the people of the Bible and indeed people up to the time of Darwin who is the new Messiah to them as so foolish that they thought everything was caused by demons or angels and that miracles were all around them and then when science came along Sagan says we were given freedom from all those atavistic fears of our forefathers. And this is, of course, complete rubbish. Before I get it into you, let me explain, let me remind you of a, something that even Carl must have known something about. I'm going to call him Carl like we did lunch. Uh, <clears throat> that he must have known because he wrote a book. There was even a movie about it. It wasn't a super hit movie, but it had Jodie Foster in it as a plucky scientist are there any other kind? A plucky scientist played by uh, Jodie Foster. She, she is, uh, they are examining the stars and she hears a pattern of a few notes and letters coming across the computer. It's called Contact. Perhaps uh, two or three of you saw the movie. Again, it wasn't a hit. It wasn't a bad movie. It just wasn't a great movie. So it doesn't make a big splash. Um, knowing that the odds of a pattern like this forming spontaneously from space are, to coin a word, astronomical, she says, well, that must mean that there's an alien intelligence out there. And these few little letters, these few little tones showing up in the same order, very much like Close Encounter of the Third Kind, but a different form of that, proves that there's alien life out there. And Carl Sagan wrote that book as a, reason, as a, as a plea for us to keep looking for that life that must be there. But it breaks my heart because Sagan ignored the largest word known to man. A 3.5 billion letter word called DNA that exists in every cell of your body that has intricate architectural um, drawings, chemical equations, structural instructions. In fact, the most exact meticulous instructions known in the universe. He couldn't see it because he was waiting for a few tones or letters to head him from outer space. And it breaks my heart, because as far as I know, he was a good man. But he had just bet on something else. Back to the historical myth, touted by Sagan, Hawkins, uh, Hawking, uh, Dawkins, and many others. If the people of, of I just want to ask, you don't have to read the whole books, all right? 
If the people of Jesus' days expected miracles and, and assumed miracles were occurring all around them at all time, then why were the miracles of Jesus of any interest to them at all? If they were not unusual, why did anybody write about them or use them for proofs? In fact, Professor John C. Lennox, who worked with Hawkins, and he is a mathematician, said this, quote, A moment's thought will show us that in order to recognize some event as a miracle, there must be some perceived regularity to which that event is an apparent exception. You cannot recognize something as abnormal if you don't know what is normal. The people of Jesus' day knew what was normal. When you got sick, you died. When you got lame, you got lamer. Whenever uh, you died, you stayed dead. And yet Jesus comes along and changes things. That was not what they were expecting. They did not live in a demon-haunted world. They did not live in a world full of miracles. Jesus was an amazing exception. And they felt it and they knew it. The book of Luke in Scripture is a fascinating one. Acts is part two of that. Luke was a historian as well as a physician and, according to a lot of sources in the first couple of centuries, also quite a painter. He seems to have been a Renaissance man long before the Renaissance. He noted, Luke did, some objections to the resurrection story. He wrote it in there, into the history. But they came from the high priest who saw that their power would disappear if this story were true. Do you understand what we just realized? The objections to Jesus' resurrection did not come from the non-religious, but from those in religious power. If miracles were everywhere, why did they say anything? Instead, they realized that this would take away their power. Remember, like most people, like Thomas, they would not believe in somebody risen from the dead unless they saw them and could touch them and know that they were not hallucinating, that this was a real event, a real situation, a real individual in front of them. The fact is, that's true because resurrection was an anomaly even then. Remember that whenever Paul talked to a king about it, the king term in scripture there is used rather loosely. Festus did like to use that one for him. That he was even, they said, I, I'm afraid that you're crazy when Paul talked about risen from the dead because that guy had not seen him like hundreds had before. Pagan myths have, show up every now and then that do have the idea of a resurrection from the dead, but none of those stand the test of time. None of those religions are still with us. And in fact, even 600 years later, when Muhammad put together his Quran, he wrote out the story of Jesus' resurrection and specifically said there was no resurrection because he just couldn't get his head around that there ever could be one. In other words, religious people don't just believe stuff. There has to be evidence. As Hebrews says, there has to be substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By the way, this will be a very different sermon here. Normally we use between six and 20 scriptures a sermon. Today we're just talking because we just need to talk this out. We know the stories. We understand our story. But is it just a story? No. The people of Jesus' day studied science. This is what really gets me. They, uh, where did we get calculus? Where did we get our numerals? Where did we get our rules and our, our system of a base 10 mathematics? We got that all from people that were born and died before Jesus. 
They liked science. Where did we get our star maps? Where did we get the concept of the Earth being a circle, the sun being the center of the universe? Yes, that was known well before Columbus. Where did we know all of that? That was, these people studied. They studied the length of shadows during a day and extrapolated from that the how big around the circumference of the planet Earth is and only missed it by less than 100 miles because they were smart. They built the pyramids. I put together something yesterday that the DVD said would take 20 minutes. They lied. <laughs> and yet these people that Sagan and Alike are saying, these are ignorant people, they did a pretty good job. It's still there, most of them. In fact, Jesus and his people lived in an age where people were classifying um, not just animals, but also plants and putting them into species and, and genus and family groups to slander to the intelligence of the people who gave us our first science, to say they didn't understand science. And then <clears throat> Hawking says, or said in his, his book that was published just before his death, that there's no place for God when you have laws of nature. That's a quote, actually. He goes further to say, what would there be for a God to do? That's interesting. My car runs by the, the laws of science and nature. But I have it on good authority, after living 10 years in Detroit, that a large group of individuals intervened when they put those materials together in a particular way to make it a functioning vehicle. To say that since natural laws exist, God can't intervene is a ludicrous statement, especially, again, quoting Lennox, he says, he's simply assuming what he wants to prove. He's expressing a belief based on his atheistic worldview and not on his science. That's very true. In fact, Hawking himself would say, we don't know how everything came into being, but most likely what happened was the law of gravity came into being, no explanation given, and then gravity somehow gave birth to everything else that is. Huh. I hate it when that happens. The thing is, by, and you'll never know this in America, but British papers, which are fiercely atheistic, fiercely atheistic, excoriated Hawking's book for being ridiculous. The people that he worked with at Oxford and Cambridge said it was ridiculous. None of that ever got over here into our media. Not a bit. That's fairly interesting. Fairly tragic. Yes, Miracles are unique. They are rare. They are improbable. That's why they're miracles. And the resurrection story is something that we can all agree is so rare and improbable that it's fine to question it. By the way, if you didn't know that, it's fine to question things. It's fine to ask. God's big enough to handle the questions. So go ask him the questions. Wrestle it out with him. He enjoys that. In fact, he called his people Israel, those who wrestle with God. He expects there to be give and take. Is this story any more rare, unique, or improbable than that a law of nature <clears throat> named gravity suddenly showed up out of nowhere when all of the gravity that we know of in the universe exists because of other things that pre-existed the gravity? Mass. 
Yet he has to turn that all around and say, no, gravity showed up somehow, elongated, I'm, I'm, I'm really simplifying this as best I can, El elongated infinity minus one time, which is a lot, it's a lot. And then collapsed upon itself and made you. And butterflies and you goes and newspapers. And I left out a couple steps, but that's basically where he's going with this. He never saw how odd his choices were. He believed in the multiverse. I don't, by the way, even though I love quantum physics and, and um, I play with it. The multiverse says everything that can happen is happening on some planet somewhere. So you believe in a multiverse, but you want to limit what happens. Sorry, you can't do that. If you're going to buy it, you have to buy the system. But let's, let's pull back a minute. Do atheists have a point? Yeah, you're allowed to question. I mean, there are tens of millions of Mormons in the world, and they have books that they say were, were given to them by an angel uh, via Joseph Smith who found them, dug them up, and read them in a different set of circumstances for different sets of plates and golden things. And there are some people that even signed letters that say, we saw all of this thing take place, and yet we don't believe it. Well, why? Because we question the stories. And there are other stories that make us give doubt of that story. And we look back at court cases and character and who actually said, no, we are sorry, we signed that thing saying we saw it. And we look at all the evidence and we go, no, I'm not going to read that book. As one man famously said, the Book of Mormon, which is Jesus, the Western. No, we're, we're not, we're not going to go with that. Another church comes to my door and wants to sell me their books on prophecy. No, I'm not interested. I don't believe their story. I know other prophecies they've made and they've all fallen flat. So I'm not going to buy these. I always say, if you want to get a really good book on prophecy, don't buy it when it comes out. Wait six months. It'll be sold for 10 cents on a table because everybody thinks they can do it and nobody can, except for that nursing mothers and the prayer girl. I'm really interested how that comes out. <laughs> By the way, I'm getting a little... Fright. Is anybody else frightened to walk into a room now? Because they're going to be in one room this week, one room the other week. Which week is it? So I'm just, knock. It, knock before you go into anything. That's, all, that's my, anyway. Millions of people, perhaps over, uh, well over a billion and a half, believe the stories of Muhammad or one of his followers. And, and I don't, because I have other stories that I think are better sourced. So you do have to choose your story. You do have to peck it. Is it God? Is it gravity? Which really fulfills the role of God in Hawkins' universe. Is it science that reveals that, that takes place of God in Sagan's universe? And by the way, if you're a visitor here and you're thinking this is me going against science, I always hate to bring this up. No, I'm a scientist. I, uh, I work in science, love science, yay, science. Uh, I'm, I'm all about it. But you've got to make sure what you're studying is actually true. And you've got to work it all the way upstream to make sure what you're getting is, it can handle the questions. You know, God gives us resurrection of Christ as a crowning proof of the glory of Jesus Christ, his deity, and Christianity's origin in the mind of God. But can we really believe in the empty tomb and the risen Lord? Are there other stories we should examine? Well, let's do that. Let's first of all start with what we know. What are well-established historical facts from Josephus, Tacitus, Roman writers, uh, and early Christian writers as well? 
There are certain facts we have. The gospel writers have proven to be reliable when they talk about history. Time after time after time after time when people have doubted it. I mean, all the way up into the 50s, they doubted there was a guy named Pontius Pilate. And then a floor in Jerusalem was found. And as it was cleaned off and excavated, there's his name as the guy that commissioned and laid the floor. Or had it laid. On and on and on. We could just keep going with this. In fact, not believing the gospels would be seen as an anti science bias because there are so many proofs that once were doubts but now are proofs the weight of history scholarship examination have gone through these books time after time and they're still going through this time after time and they've stood the test of time so here are the facts jesus was dead there's no question after the beatings the flogging the crucifixion the spear in the side he's dead professional crucifiers handled the job this was their job. They knew how to do it. They did it very often. It was brutal, but you can always find people who will do things like this in every age. They made sure it was done right. After he was certified as dead, we also get this from the Romans, he was removed from the cross. He was taken to a tomb carved out of rock. Inside the tomb were shells for the dead. Jesus was wrapped in a linen sheet with spices and ointments weighing many, many, many pounds. The tomb was a well-known one from a well-regarded, wealthy individual in the area. The women waited and they watched the tomb after Jesus was placed inside. Pilate was asked to place a guard at the tomb. He had them set their own temple guards in it, uh, outside of it because they had very, uh, they were invested in that rock stand right where it was. Because if anything happens to that rock, and if there's any other story than that Jesus is dead, they lose all of their power. So they put their best guys on it. The temple guards were highly, exceptionally well-trained men. Very much like um, American army, it would be kind of like the Green Berets or the Rangers. They were the tough ones. They were the more elite, maybe Marine Recon Unit or something such as this. They had strict military discipline. By the way, some people, when they read what uh, Pilate says say that's not who he's referring to. And he says, you have a guard. He's not saying, put your own guard there, but use the Roman one. That doesn't help doubters. Roman guards knew if they lost anybody, they'd be killed. They were invested in standing their ground. A stone was placed to seal the tomb. We know that. That's a historical fact. It was a large and heavy disc of rock, and it was rolled in front of the cave, with a, a slight depression in the middle of that hollow so that when the rock hit there, it would lodge and make it very, very difficult to move again. Could be moved because you reuse tombs, but it would take quite a lot of men and some rope to do it. But this rock couldn't move because they also put a seal on it. A seal would be wax on one side, wax on the other side, a rope in between. If that is broken, whoever breaks it dies. So that rock's not going anywhere. The stone was so large that the women who came to put more spices on his body were very concerned that there would not be enough men there to help them access the body as they could not move the stone. The seal was on it. The disciples went on their way. There is no evidence in scripture that the disciples thought he was coming back. Oh, he told them, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. There's no indication 
that anybody thought he was going to be back. And then the tomb's found open. It's unguarded. It's empty on Sunday morning. The grave clothes are folded neatly. Listen, kids, Jesus made his bed. And, every, and it's empty. And then Jesus appeared to hundreds of witnesses after his resurrection. And there seems to have been universal acceptance that this was Jesus and no imposter. Or as our friends and the Jehovah's Witnesses would claim, just a spirit body. No, he said touch and he, he touched and he touched others and he ate with them. This is a real body. The enemies of Christ were silent for a very long time. It took more than a century before anybody tried to question the story. Now that means all of the people living there who knew how to write knew they had nothing that could turn this story aside. They knew the evidence. They knew the witnesses. You know what that's like. Somebody writes a book about someone else's life. What happens? Everybody lights up Twitter and Facebook going, they made a mistake here, here, here. There were a hundred years, and there wasn't, there wasn't Twitter or Facebook, but there wasn't anything else keeping them busy either. They had a lot of time to read and formulate other arguments, and they didn't. The silence of those who are enemies of Christ is staggering and haunting. Well, what's happened since? Well, there have been some objections. Uh, some voiced by skeptics, others by Muslims, others by well-meaning uh, so-called religious leaders of uh, some churches. Uh, I'll just go through them. I've, I've read, I read all this stuff I can find, and I don't read it to prove it wrong. I read it to see, well, do they have something? Do they have, have information that I need to have? Because, let's face it, people, if there is no Jesus, we need to quit coming here on Sunday morning and just go have fun, eat, drink, be merry, and hurt each other until we die. Jesus, he changes you if you believe in him. So, what are the objections? Well, the first one came from a book called The Passover Plot. And yeah, I'm not afraid to give you the titles. Yeah, it's been out there since the early 60s, I believe. It said Jesus didn't die. He swooned. I'm, I'm going to let you work on that one for a while. That it, they thought he was dead. Professional killers of people on crosses made a mistake. They, well, they're not medical doctors. These things happen. So he just swooned, and then he rolled the stone away and got out of the grave later. All right. This is a man who has been beaten, his back ripped up with a, a scourge, his head beaten to the point where when he spoke, people couldn't understand what he was saying on the cross. Too much teeth loss, too much swelling. That's what happens when you get beaten. He had not had anything to eat or drink for three days. He had been hauled all over, mistreated by a series of courts. When I say mistreated, not just injustice. We're talking physical brutality for fun. The Roman soldiers, it says that they were beating him and laughing at him. Now this guy now has been wrapped up in about 100 pounds of spices and cloth. And he woke up. And he burst out of that, rolled the stone away, beat up the Roman guards or temple guards. I'm sorry, but that's actually harder to believe than the resurrection story. You ever been rolled in anything? You ever been rolled in a carpet? I had three older sisters. 
if I didn't watch out, they'd make a Patrick burrito right there. <laughs> and it doesn't take 100 pounds. It just takes couple, about one and a half wraps is all that was necessary for Patrick to be contained here. And I'd like to lay down and tell you how I felt about all that, but that's not the point today. Let's talk, I'm afraid you'll wrap me up in a... You don't fight out of that. After three days being beaten, swooned in a coma, wrapped up in a cave, he even said the coolness of the cave brought him back. How are you going to roll the stone back and then beat up the guards? And, they, and by the way, had the guards said, the guy wasn't dead, he came out and beat us up, they could have lived. But they said, um, Noah, you know, we were scared by these other people and oh my, we fell asleep. And they, that was a death sentence. Why didn't they do the other story? Or how about this one? The disciples stole the body. Really? really? Why didn't the guards say so? That would have been a very easy mystery to solve. Why'd they have to lie and place their lives and reputations in danger? Does this match with our picture of the apostles? How many of them stood around Jesus at the trial and said, no, you'll have to go through my cold, dead body? Are you kidding? They kind of left one of those cartoon smoke trails. Just, gone. They didn't believe. They did not, they were not expecting this. It doesn't explain the doubts and the confusion and the excitement of the apostles when they come to an empty tomb going, what, what, what happened here? Or the women saying, somebody must have moved him. What, who, who would do such a thing? It doesn't explain the grave clothes being left neatly on the shelf because normally when one is making a getaway from the Roman army, I have found in my experience that you don't make your bed and put things to order inside a tomb. None of this makes sense, but we have, but the thing is, we're not used to asking the questions. We, in our society, are used to hearing assertions and assuming someone is speaking an argument that has been proven. No, 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 no. Question. Question me. Question anybody. You can question God, too, because he said so. He said, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Well, how about this one? The Jews or the Romans hid the body because they knew something like this was going to happen. Really? Then why didn't they produce it when the substitute Jesus is walking around? We hid the body because we knew what you guys are up to. Then you got a guy walking around here going, I'm Jesus. Why didn't you just go, oh, no, he didn't. They didn't. They didn't write anything about it. Jesus making personal appearances. Rome wanted that body to stay in that tomb. Joseph of Arimathea had no reason to move it out of there, lose his fortune, and lose his freedom. All of the poster, I read this once, all of, this is recently, all of the post-resurrection sightings were hallucinations. Really? I'm sorry, as a, as a former shrink, there's a rule, you're not allowed to diagnose people that you're not face-to-face -face with that you don't have the records, how am I supposed to say these hundreds of people all had hallucinations? Really? But they were seen by many people, people who didn't expect to see it. This isn't like seeing the outline of Elvis on your toast. There's a lot more riding on this. It doesn't explain how he was seen inside, outside, by the sea, in the city, by one, by two, by hundreds, but never at the same time in two different places as you would expect with hallucinations. It only saw, the witnesses only referred to things which, well, it sounds like witness statements. Here's the one that really gets to me. They went to the wrong tomb. Wow, I hate how, I hate it when that happens. 
when you have somebody that you've dearly loved, you've followed, he's your hero, you bury him, and a couple of days later you're going, where did, we, where did we put him? Who does that? One time, we were only in America for a couple of years by this time, and uh, I was uh, playing in a golf tournament for one of our Christian colleges, Ohio University, uh, Ohio Valley University now. Uh, and I had to get out quick because I had a funeral to do that day. And so I had a, the tournament wasn't good anyway, so I was glad to leave. I was just not doing well. So, you know, changed at the clubhouse, went over, did the funeral, came back in, and my, my, there was a look on my wife's face. And I went, what? She goes, you have to do the funeral again tomorrow. I said, why? And she said, because they draped the wrong hole. Funeral home dead, yet people put him in the wrong hole. I shouldn't have said what I said next. <laughs> in retrospect, I can see how it, was, it, it could have been uncaring. But I, I thought about the golf, and I was thinking, I've not been able to get anything to stay in the hole all day long. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember much of what happened next. Um, people, they went to the wrong tomb, and whenever they reported to the women, and the women reported to other people, they all went to the wrong tomb. Everybody? It's ridiculous. Enough enough. Believing in a resurrection is a more intelligent option and more rational, bring, go ahead and bring your team up, than any of the other stories out there. It just is. So now we believe this, so what? Now, now what do we do with this? The Bible says that the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. Would you stand, please? You are saved, certified as saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you and gives you strength, witness, power, and you are all anointed by that Spirit, the same Spirit that worked among us before. As Max Lucado once put it, a 90-year-old woman gives birth, and so does a virgin. An 80-year-old shepherd frees a nation. A people cross a sea on dry ground. Daniel walks in a lion's den, and three men refuse to burn in the furnace of the king because of the Holy Spirit of God. And that same spirit shows us that even death is nothing to a believer. We can do anything. We not only believe in the resurrection, we have a resurrection faith. Amen, church?